0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit Ellerslie.com. On June 10, 1944, Winston Churchill made a trip to the coastline of France to have a luncheon at a lovely chateau. Four days earlier, Churchill would have been cut down with bullets and artillery blasts. But because of the shed blood of thousands upon thousands of Allied soldiers over the past three days, this French countryside was now the picture of peaceful tranquility. Hey, this is Eric. This is part 69 of my series on World War II. If you would like to catch up on the first 68 episodes in this thrilling series, visit ellerslie.com forward slash daily to find a link to the entire audio collection. Now let's join Mr. Churchill as he makes his way across the English Channel and visits the newly conquered Allied territory in France to see the spoils of D-Day. And in so doing, let's explore the extraordinary spoils of an even greater day 2,000 years prior. The spoils of D-Day is the name of this message. We are, uh, for those of you that are jumping aboard uh, in episode 69 uh, of this series, we have been traversing through the uh, extraordinary uh, tale of World War II and all of its drama. In fact, up to this point, it's been difficulty upon difficulty upon difficulty, and then we have uh, a a series of breakthroughs that begins. At the very end of 1942 into 1943, you're going to see a turning of the tide. Uh, For the Americans, it's the Battle of Midway. For the British, it's the Battle of El Alamein in North Africa, and this is literally going to be the first victories for both of them in the entire war. Up to that point the Axis powers were victorious, 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 and they had a swagger. And there's such a parallel in our lives with this pattern of defeat that you get into. And when all you've tasted is defeat, it's very difficult to get out there and fight again. And it's, it's oftentimes just takes the wind out of your souls. Uh, the, the idea of morale in battle is of great significance and it's a it's one of those things in the history of war that's difficult to measure everyone knows it's a significant player if your troops have low morale then you're likely going to lose the battle but what is morale i mean where does it come from and how do you get it and how do you keep it and in the kingdom of heaven we have a different terminology for it and it's faith it's it's hope you see, these, these are terms that we use uh, continually, but it's, it's in a sense the morale of the troops. And when your faith is sound and strong, it doesn't matter how much the enemy has won, you know that God is going to win the day. You know that he is going to win the battle. And so this threshold that we cross from defeat into victory is right at that turning point when we see our champion, we see his strength, we see his merit, his ability, and we trust that he can turn the tide. I'm fighting with him. And you know, some of you have heard me reflect on that one scene of, it's from the books, The Scottish Chiefs of William Wallace. It's this dark hour. Uh, he's, the, all the troops of Scotland, he's, he's their hero, but he is uh, ben, he, he's, he's gone he, He's left the country And he, he escaped to France for the sake of his life But he cannot live there He needs to come back to Scotland And help his people But he, if he comes back, they'll kill him So he comes back in disguise As Guy de Longville, a knight uh, A French knight And uh, his troops are fighting He's fighting along with them in anonymity And they don't even know that he's fighting But he's willing to die on behalf of Scotland Even in anonymity But the battle's turning bad, and uh, the, the Scots are fleeing from the English, and Wallace knows that they need courage, that they need hope, that they need something to believe in. So he runs to the top of this rocky cliff and whips off his helmet. And of course, in Scottish chiefs, he has this long flowing blonde hair. And so they can see it waving in the wind. And, and uh, he's like, men of Scotland. And all of uh, Scotland are like, Wallace. And they come storming back into battle. And sometimes that's what we all need. We need to see Wallace. <laughs> we need to see our king. We need to see our champion. Or very specifically, we need to see the cross clearly again. It's funny, the, it's called the fog of war. It's actually a term that has been used in uh, war history that you can know the battle plan and you can look the, the general in the eye and he's like, do you understand? He's like, yes, sir. And so you take that plan and then you implement it in war. But when you get into the terrain of war, it looks different than it did on the map. And when you get into the war and you have all the the bullets whizzing and even fog, even bad weather, you know, rain and clouds and it, Everything gets displaced and this party over here who was supposed to swing over here had a difficulty. They're not there and so it disorients you. And the fog of war, especially before they had radio communications, they literally had no idea where everyone was. And so they're guessing. It starts to create a panic in in war, which you can understand if bullets are flying how there could be a panic in the first place, but it can cause very stout-hearted men to melt and run from the battle. And so the fog of war is a very real thing that the enemy wants to play against us. He wants us to have a certain dread and fog. Now, don't we know that our general is in control? Don't we know that he's Jesus Christ, that he's never lost? How in the world can the devil play us like that, and how can we get into a fog? Come on, guys. We serve the winning side here, and yet the devil's very good at it. He's, he's a military tactician. He's a befuddler. He is a deceiver, and he loves to create whatever nonsense he can to create that tremor, that terror of war for us. And so it's very, very significant to maintain, as we could say today, our morale, our faith. We must remember the victory. And so this is sort of a a fun message, if I could say it that way, and it's sort of hard to find a fun message in all of World War II, but we are uh, June 10th, 1944, we're just after the... Uh, the first, uh, this is like the fourth day after D-Day, and so we have a a victory that's in the air, and you're going to have this visit of Winston Churchill and also the the key chiefs of staff from America. Uh, Roosevelt can't make it. It's difficult for Franklin Roosevelt. He lived, you know has polio. He lives in a wheelchair. It's difficult for him to make these international trips, so he's not going to be there. But typically, he would be. In other words, this is the victory where the commander-in-chief wants to be there on the field, and they want to survey the triumph. And so we have sort of just this unique thing where we're going to survey the triumph of D-Day on June 10th. And so it's a unique reflection, I think, for us of surveying the triumph of a greater D-Day. I mean, D-Day is possibly one of the most significant days in world history, right? But it pales next to the capital D, D D-Day, or make it just this huge font, like you know, 7,000 font uh, You know, in your font size of the D on D-Day at the cross. This is the single greatest day of breakthrough in all of universal history, is Jesus and the cross. So it makes the D-Day on the beaches of Normandy, though it's significant, very, very small. And so this visit and the survey of the victory is very, very small. It's a very small victory next to the victory of the cross. But if there's a parallel there that I think is significant, you're going to see this troop of men that has been down in the dumps <laughs> for, for four years. This is one difficult thing. In fact, it's probably a lot longer than four years, but they have not seen the light of day for a long time. They have, I mean, the shorelines of France have been staring ominously at them for a long time and they have an evil foe right back there that's staring longingly at their shores, longing to take them down and so to actually have now a foothold on the on the in the in, the, in the, the territory of France is just huge. And I think we forget because we never lived in Great Britain in this time. We were never in the Battle of Britain where we were being bombed by the Luftwaffe and we really have no defense other than just to take the bombing. I mean it's and just to live it out. I mean this is intense stuff. If you've lived through that, it's sort of like those who have been forgiven much love much those that have uh, had a great victory in their life to overcome great sin uh, relish it much. And so that's what you're going to see in this, is that, that shifting of perspective, the building of morale. So we call this the spoils of D-Day. So one of our key characters in this one is General, uh, General Bernard Montgomery, sort of a humorous character. He has the nickname of Monty, uh, and uh, he's I, I, you can sort of tell by some of the things I'm going to show you that he has sort of this wry British sense of humor. And uh, this guy's going to be one of the crucial uh, characters in the Battle of El Alamein, which, if you haven't uh, heard that message, that's the turning point for the British. At that point, this is in North Africa, and when, they, when the British win this, in general, uh, Montgomery is the one that's going to lead the troops into that. So he's going to have that you know as his historical marker Uh, for his life, sort of like Eisenhower has D-Day, Montgomery has El Alamein. Well, what's important about El Alamein, not just is it a victory, it's their first victory, and not just that, but from that point on, the British basically win every battle. And so it sets a new tone completely. So this guy becomes a hero uh, of World War II to the British. A lot of us as Americans may not know him, but that's because you know, he, his, we don't really study El Alamein that often. That isn't a, a significant battle to the American mind, even though it should be. It's, you know, we're, we're stuck in Midway, uh, D-Day, Battle of the Bulge. You know, those are things that say, oh, yeah, we, we've heard of those. But uh, El Alamein, come on, Montgomery, he can't be that important. But he's, he's a very significant, significant and sizable character in World War Two. So this will give you at least a little uh, background on Montgomery. Obviously an animal lover. So he brings this to battle. He has two puppies and he names his two puppies Hitler and Rommel. Uh, and Rommel, Erwin Rommel is the chief, you know, the the bad guy. He'd be sort of the uh, the Montgomery of the other side, you know, and and or the Eisenhower of the other side. So it's almost like Roosevelt and Eisenhower or uh, Churchill and Montgomery. It's that, that's like naming your pets. That so he, in other words, the way he looks at it is, yeah, he's gonna he's gonna play with Hitler and Rommel. Okay, he's he he looks at them as pets uh, to his bidding. So that's that's sort of his British humor coming out, and he has some canaries behind him. So, uh, a pet lover and a humorous guy. So, June 10th, 1944, we have the inspection of the victory. And so, what I want us to walk through today, I want you to see this from sort of a different angle. Again, my goal is not just to teach you history, even though history is a wonderful lesson in and of itself. It's to sort of show you what we also need to be doing. There is a great victory that we need to rehearse and inspect. In fact, I'd say communion is an inspection of the victory. It's it's like taking that territory, coming across in the battleship, standing on the shores of Normandy and saying, this is taken, and then surveying the territory and examining what has been purchased with the blood of the soldiers. And in this case, the blood of the soldier, Jesus. Jesus. So the inspection of the victory. This is a fascinating meditation. So I'm going to call this the first steps of the believing soldier. So if Churchill believes that it's true that there has been a seizing of the shorelines of France about eight miles in, and however many miles wide, I'm not sure. I don't remember. I didn't get that data. But it's not that big of a territory. But if he genuinely believes it, will he feel comfortable boarding a battleship and actually going over and setting his feet on those shores? I mean, those very shores are the ones where, I mean, thousands of men died in just the first day. And so on his side, does he have that belief that when Montgomery says, it's done, sir, it's safe, you can come on over, does he believe it? So to reckon the victory, he hasn't seen it, with his own hands he hasn't or with his own hands he hasn't seen it that was an interesting illustration he hasn't seen it with his own eyes he hasn't touched it and had the you know sand sift through his fingers he hasn't heard the calm and the peace no no gunfire he hasn't he hasn't personally beheld the evidence but by faith he is going to reckon a victory and this is exactly what paul is going to say in romans 6 reckon yourself dead indeed unto sin and alive unto christ jesus hey churchill Reckon an allied victory, even though you have not seen it and inspected it personally. And so that's what we're going to call reckoning the victory. And so if you reckon the victory, this is the first steps forward of the believing soldier. If you truly believe, if you truly believe that this has been gained, then go inspect it. Go and take it. So Winston Churchill, in his memoirs, says, "...on June 10th, General Montgomery reported that he was sufficiently established ashore to receive a visit." I therefore set off in my train to Portsmouth with Smuts, Brooke, General Marshall, and Admiral King. All three American chiefs of staff had flown to the United Kingdom on June 8th in case any vital military decision had to be taken at short notice. A British and an American destroyer awaited us. Smuts, Brooke, and I embarked in the former, and General Marshall and Admiral King with their staffs in the latter, and we crossed the channel, that's the English channel, without incident to our respective fronts, Montgomery, smiling and confident, met me at the beach as we scrambled out of our landing craft. First of all, that's, that's a telltale sign right there. When your general is smiling and he's feeling very good about his victory. I mean, this is like what you want to show off. Okay, if you're Montgomery, you're very excited to have all these important people come over. Your prime minister is coming over. It's like, sir, I want to show you what has been accomplished. And so Montgomery is smiling and confident, met me at the beach as we scrambled out of our landing craft. His army had already penetrated seven or eight miles inland, exploring the purchase. Don't you like that thought of exploring the purchase? It's like, imagine that we just set our feet on the beaches of Normandy or the purchase of the inheritance of heaven when Jesus says, it is finished. It's safe now to come on over. Your enemy is defeated. Whoa, 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 are you sure? Because the last time I checked, they had machine gun nests on Omaha Beach that weren't taken out. Are are you sure? Yeah, the last thing you want to do is set your feet on Omaha Beach unless you know that it's done, that it's finished. And your king says, it is finished. It is safe to come over and to explore the purchase of the cross. So Winston Churchill continues, there was very little firing or activity. The weather was brilliant, We drove through our limited but fertile domain in Normandy. It was pleasant to see the prosperity of the countryside. The fields were full of lovely red and white cows basking or parading in the sunshine. (laughs) The inhabitants seemed quite buoyant and well-nourished and waved enthusiastically. Montgomery's headquarters, about five miles inland, were in a chateau with lawns and lakes around it. We lunched in a tent looking towards the enemy. The general was in the highest spirits. I don't know about you, but this is such a different feel the rest of the World War II series. This just feels so delightful. I mean, the, the weather is brilliant. We have a fertile domain. We have cows, lovely red and white cows, basking and parading in the sunshine. I mean, this is, we have a chateau. Doesn't it just sound nice to go into a chateau? This chateau has lawns and lakes around it, and there's a tent where we can lunch. Oh, yeah, the enemy's over there, but guess what? We're in safe territory. We're in conquered territory. I like it. The general is in the highest spirits. I'm sort of in the highest spirits right now. I mean, this is just great. I don't know what we're eating for lunch, but I don't care. Okay, this is just good stuff. So Winston Churchill continues, I asked him, or Montgomery, how far away the actual front was the actual front. He said about three miles. I asked him if we had a continuous line. That means an unbroken, fortified defense. He said no. <laughs> what is there then to prevent an incursion of German armor breaking up our luncheon? He said he did not think they would come. The staff, <laughs> the staff told me the chateau had been heavily bombed the night before. So the chateau was bombed the night before And they're just like eating lunch there with this, you know, high spirits. And certainly there were a good many craters around it. I told them he was taking too much of a risk if he made a habit of such proceedings. Putting on the armor. So what we see is in Christianity, these first steps forward are, do you recognize that Jesus has said it is finished? Do you realize what he accomplished on the cross? Reckon it yours. This belongs to you. Now, let's come over. I want to show you what was purchased. All right, do you have a continuous line in your life? No. We're going to need to deal with that, okay? Because I know we're having a great, jolly lunch here with high spirits, but we have an enemy that will attempt to encroach on our territory. We need to put on the armor. We need to wear the defense of heaven, that which has been supplied us, because part of the surveying of the territory is surveying the war chest. And so it's very, very significant that we develop and draw out that continuous line. So Winston Churchill continues, anything can be done once or for a short time. This is him referring to Montgomery taking a little lightly the fact that they're only three miles uh, from the enemy. This is the way a lot of us are when we first come into Christianity. Have you ever heard someone where they talk rather lightly about this dumb devil out there and they criticize the devil who's now defeated And they take lightly the power of the enemy. I know that sounds like a good thing to do, but you need to recognize you compared to your enemy, Winston Churchill, Montgomery, standing up against the German army are very weak. The reason they feel confident is they have a very strong military force that is freshly victorious, right? So they're basking in that. Their high spirits are drenched with that victory. And yet, many young Christians will step into this new territory and take lightly the fact that this devil is more powerful than they are. And so they need to recognize they have to wear that armor. They, the enemy is not more powerful than they are in Christ, but he is more powerful than they are. And so they need to recognize as a new believer, we need to have a certain regard and respect for our enemy and recognize that it is Christ that defeats them. He gives us the authority to speak in his name and to repel them, but we must recognize how this battle works and who ultimately wins the victory. So this is in response. Churchill's a little upset with Montgomery of how lightly he's taking this. Anything can be done once or for a short time, but custom repetition prolongation is always to be avoided when possible in war. In other words, you can have your lunch out here three miles from the enemy in target range for any artillery, and you could do that once, maybe twice, but, you know, the enemy's going to catch on and he's going to bomb you in the middle of your luncheon if you don't watch it. He did, in fact, move two days later, though not till he, had, he and his staff had had another dose. <laughs> they enjoyed the luncheon, I guess, again in the lawn. It continued fine, and apart from occasional air alarms and anti-aircraft fire, there seemed to be no fighting. We made a considerable inspection of our limited bridgehead. I was particularly interested to see the local ports of Port... And I'm going to mess up the French here. I, I don't speak uh, French. Uh, Port-en-Bessin. Does that sound like more French? Uh, I should just say it the way it sounds in English. Then those of you that do f- speak French are not going to need to correct me. port in bessin Corsules, and Oostraham. See, I even added some kind of accent to that. Uh, okay, how, how close was I, guys? It's, all of you that speak, not close? Okay. Uh, <clears> okay. <throat> Now, what's interesting is he has gained these ports that he didn't even know of. In other words, this wasn't part of the D-Day plan was to gain these ports. We had not counted much on these little harbors and any of the plans we had made for the great, for the great descent. They proved a the most valuable acquisition and soon we're discharging about 2,000 tons a day. I dwelt on these agreeable facts as we drove or walked around our interesting but severely restricted conquest. So, it's important for us to do the same, to recognize that we have dimensions to the cross work that we didn't even know about. It's, it's interesting, but when we're first heading out across the channel in our battleship, we're just happy to have a territory that is peaceful, again, that the Germans are, are pushed out. But Did you know that we have a little harbor here? And you know what we can bring in through that harbor? You know what we can send out through that harbor? Boy, this is going to be useful. It's the same thing that happens with the kingdom of heaven as you begin to inspect it and acquaint yourself with it. And again, this is the first steps forward in the Christian life is get to know what Christ has accomplished. Study it. Become familiar with it. Do an inspection. Survey the territory. Survey the land. You have access to the throne of grace. Do you even know what that means? Do you know what he's accomplished? So wielding the weaponry. I, this is a really fun story, guys. I'm glad that I get to share it uh, with you. So, uh, you know, when you're the prime minister, you don't, you're not the one that you know, shoots the bullets. Uh, you know, launches the artillery uh, and uh, f- fires from the battleships. You're the one that tells someone else to do it. So now you have all these high up military guys that are in a battleship surveying the coastline. This is this is a fun story. So wielding the weaponry, this is what we need to do too. So Winston Churchill continues. Smuts, Brooke, and I went home in the destroyer Kelvin, Admiral Vion who now commanded all the flotillas and light craft protecting the Oralmanchus harbor, was on board. He proposed that we should go and watch the bombardment of the German position by the battleships and cruisers protecting the British left flank. Accordingly, we passed between the two battleships, which were firing at 20,000 yards, and through the cruiser squadron, firing at about 14,000 yards, and soon we were within seven or 8,000 yards of the shore, which was thickly wooded. The bombardment was leisurely and continuous, but there was no reply from the enemy. Since we were about to turn, I said to Vion, Since we are so near, why shouldn't we have a plug at them ourselves before we go home? He said, Certainly. And in a minute or two, all our guns fired on the silent coast. We were, of course, well within the range of their artillery. And the moment we had fired, Vion made the destroyer turn about and depart at the highest speed. We were soon out of danger and passed through the cruiser and battleship lines. This is the only time I have ever been on board a naval vessel when she fired in anger, if it can be so called. I admired the admiral's sporting spirit. Smuts, too, was delighted. I slept soundly on the four-hour voyage to Portsmouth. Altogether, it had been a most interesting and enjoyable day. <laughs> Isn't that a great story? There's so many parallels, and every time I get into World War II, I'm just like, that's amazing. That's amazing. I mean, they have no idea. Churchill isn't doing this on purpose, saying, Eric, do you see it? I'm creating a parallel for you to understand the inspection of surveying the wondrous cross. Do you see what has been done for you? And even in the end, he's exercising his weapons. It's like, you do know, sir, that we have weapons of warfare that are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. Do you want to try one? It's like, we have been given a victory. And it wasn't one that was achieved through the shedding of our own blood. It was one that was achieved through his working. Yet he wants to share it with us. Come on, get get aboard the Kelvin and come across the channel. I want you to see what I've done for you. Here, I've set up a luncheon for you in a chateau underneath a tent. And I want you, though there is a very real enemy out there, I want you to cherish the fact that we have victory. And I want you to see what has been supplied to you. Here, let me show you the battlements. Let me show you your armor. Let me show you the battleships. Yeah, you see that wooded area? Here, push this button. Whoa, you can do that? Yep, and a lot more than that. Hang out with me, Eric, and you'll discover all sorts of things. The cross... Is accomplished. It is past tense. And yet its usefulness is present tense and future tense. It's not just something that was accomplished. It's something that is available to us. And if you want, you can get aboard that battleship via faith and actually cross into this territory and we can explore this together. So even though this is a very short trip, I would like to cross the channel and explore the wondrous cross with you afresh. First, the first steps of the believing soldier. So, reckoning the victory, exploring the purchase, putting on the armor, and wielding the weaponry. So let's just do that. Let's just enjoy this. This is from Isaac Watts' uh, hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine? that we're a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. When you see and you survey this purchased territory, this grand work of the soldier of one, as we used in the last message, the big red one, who has come and accomplished on our behalf what we could not accomplish on our own. When we survey his work And we recognize, even if he were to give us all the worlds, all of them, that it would be a present far too small to give back to him and to say, you are worth so much more than this. This is nothing compared to what you have given to me. We have been given something so much greater than even all the worlds. We've been given the life of God. We've been given eternal access into intimate fellowship with him befuddling, extraordinary, bewildering, all the words that, you know, we can combine them all together in the English language, every adjective or adverb that could possibly try and describe these things, and we would end up with something that still falls short. There is no way that even in this little time that I have today that I can properly do what the Holy Spirit alone can do, and that is to give you an inspection and a survey of this wondrous cross. Everything I do always falls short. That's one of the hardest things about being a minister of the gospel, is you feel like you are so impotent in possibly explaining how amazing it is. Have you ever had it where you have these moments where you see it, you see the wonder of it, and then you go back to just your knowledge of it. It's like, yes, it's true, that happened. But you don't see it in its glory, in its grandeur, which is why we rehearse old hymns a lot of times and sing songs because that person was seeing it when they wrote it <laughs> and so we'll like jump into their skin again and sing it and but it's hard to hold on to it because it's spiritually discerned it's spiritually understood and we are pro- we have a propensity towards natural thought we have a propensity towards earthen care and so we lose sight of the grandeur uh, it could we could all use a fresh inspection of this amazing work So the spoils of D-Day, but not the D-Day from June 6th, 1944. The D-Day of whatever day it was, Nisan 14 of, let's just say AD 33, even though likely it wasn't AD 33. Somewhere in that range. What was gained? So this is just a quick survey. Let's walk around the territory. Atonement, Romans 5.11. Propitiation, or a just and satisfying offering in your stead. Uh, that's romans three twenty five justification from sin romans five nine forgiveness of sins ephesians one seven colossians one fourteen hebrews nine seven remission of sins matthew twenty six twenty eight romans three twenty five hebrews nine twenty two cleansing and washing from all sin 1 john one seven revelation one five revelation seven fourteen Purging of conscience, Hebrews 9.14, peace, Colossians 1.20. Reconciliation unto Christ, Colossians 1.20. Righteousness, Romans 3.22, 2 Corinthians 5.21, Philippians 3.9. Saving us from the wrath that will come, Romans 5.9. Destruction of the devil, Hebrews 2.14. Overcoming the devil, Revelation 12.11. Redemption, Ephesians 1, 1.7, Colossians 1.14, Hebrews 9.12, Revelation 5.9 and Acts 20.28. 20, Eternal life, John 6.53 and 54. The bringing back to life, Hebrews 13.20. It's for sanctification, Hebrews 10.29, Hebrews 13.12. For spiritual and physical healing, Isaiah 53.5 and First Peter 2.24. Boldness to enter into the holy of holies, the very presence of God, Hebrews ten nineteen, an enablement to make our daily, hourly, minute by minute home in Christ Jesus, John six fifty six. I mean, that's just like scratching the surface in Scripture. That's literally just what the blood of Jesus is for. But if we were to go deeper, and we were to look at what it says we have in Christ, it explodes all the more. There's another, I think, forty six things that are easy pickings that we could come across in the new testament in addition to that the chief what do we find in this land and montgomery brings us over and he says this is the treasure of treasures i just want you to see what has been gained it's not a little harbor it's not just you know the fact that you know we have this little town and the chateau with some lawns and lakes we have access to the throne room of grace you know what that means The Holy Spirit can now live inside of us. We can actually have intimate fellowship. God in us. That's a pretty cool accomplishment. That's pretty amazing. And it's hard to even comprehend because all of the other beauties come out of that beauty. Because when you have that triumph and you realize it in your life, suddenly your eyes open to discern your mind is able to function to understand. Your mouth is able to begin to utter the praise, the worship, the adoration that is Spirit-sponsored. You see, there is something that God has done which is so far beyond what it was accomplished by the Allies on June 6th through June 9th, 1944. This is something so profound in that three-day stretch Back in, we'll say, A.D. 33, when Jesus died and conquered and was buried and then on the third day resurrected. And then says, hey, uh, <clears throat> all of you, I want to show you what you now have because of what he did. So this is uh, Winston Churchill. This is a letter it's so one of the things I love about history is you can actually, especially when it's far enough in the past, is you can get personal letters and things. And so I, this is a personal letter to Roosevelt because Churchill really wished Roosevelt could have been there. And so there's something about the gospel tier in this that I, that I see that we have seen something and we want to share it. Churchill wants to share this victory with Roosevelt. They're good friends and he wants Roosevelt to see this. He knows that Roosevelt has, of course, the, the difficulties of health. Roosevelt isn't going to last much longer, by the way. If you remember, it's Truman, uh, Harry Truman, that's going to finish up as president of the United States in World War II, and we don't have much longer in World War II. So you have the final days of Roosevelt, and you have Churchill, of course, he doesn't know this at the time, but just desiring Roosevelt to share in this. And you can even hear it in the tone in the letter. And I'm not going to read you the whole letter, just a paragraph from it. But Churchill saying to Roosevelt, you used the word stupendous in one of your early telegrams to me. I must admit that what I saw could only be described by that word. And I think your officers would agree as well. How I wish you were here. Isn't that just an incredible statement? That's, That's us. How about all those out there that are dying of polio that could use a little hope in their heart right about now. And, you know, they can give acknowledgements. and say, hey, I'm glad that works for you. It's like, I, I really wish you could see this, to see what I see right now. And so there's just something in there that I want to just have as a takeaway. is not for us alone to see this, but for us to recognize that we are built to be carriers of this good news. And what we are able to taste and see in this purchase in the Normandy territory, that we can't keep it to ourselves. But we're going to show everyone that we know the, the battleship Kelvin, the destroyer Kelvin, and say, get aboard so that you can get over here and taste and see for yourself how good this victory is. Father, Thank you for what you have done. When I survey the wondrous cross, I see something so grand and so divine. I see a victory that somehow, someway, you have made mine. Lord, thank you for this amazing work. And I pray that each one of us would see it afresh. We would behold it anew and we would live in light of it. And Lord Jesus, we would begin to send off letters to all the Roosevelts in our life that need to hear the good news. And may we invite them to come join us on the shores of Normandy, on the shores of Emmanuel's land, the purchased territory of the cross so that we could enjoy it, we could enter in. We could enjoy that armory. We could enjoy that treasure room. We could enjoy the fullness of life in Christ. It's in the great name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellersley campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.